She did. Oh, I saw you try to sneak that in. I, did you bring enough for the class? <laughs> Sorry, class. This is dry mouths for the rest of you. <laughs> Let us pray. God of grace, God of glory, we thank you for allowing us to once again return to the confines of the sanctuary and to the household of faith to take this few moments that you have given us to contemplate on the wonders that you work in and around us. May you anchor our hearts and minds towards the meditation on today's text. May we not only find ourselves in it, but find our way through it, because we recognize that you have always called us to set forth a, a gracious and loving example. So may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. Bless, keep, and guide us now and always. Amen. So the passage that Steve gave us in Romans, because I'm kind of moving through Romans right now, I just, I'm resonating with Romans, is the part where Paul is talking about the conflict between human will and the desire to do God's will. And you see that, that tension in there where he is talking almost in a circular fashion where he's like, I can will what is good. I can, I can recognize it. He goes, but I can't do it. And it's not that he has some sort of physical paralysis or that he was disabled, although he, in Corinthians he speaks about some thorn that was given in his side, but this is Romans here. What he is talking about is the, this, the struggle and the difficulty of one's mind to be able to recognize that we are called to set forth a, a more noble example, one that we see in the image of Christ, but due to our human nature, due to our desire for our own creature comforts, due to just arrogance and greed and self-worth, sometimes getting to that point of recognizing and doing the good is difficult. There are so many things that are pulling at us. Now this, this expression that Paul gives us is not one that is foreign to us. Uh, in fact, we start to realize and appreciate that the snares of trying to uh, display good conduct in the public sphere is an ongoing struggle to not have what we call, what do they call them? They call them trigger words now, to not be triggered, to not have things that will incense you, disturb you, dishevel you. Uh, we are so constantly on monitoring ourselves, being monitored by others, that sometimes we don't even know what conduct we are displaying unless it's parroted back to us by someone else. So this is Paul who's having an internal struggle about what he desires to do and feels incapable of doing that he has set for himself an example of conduct to be that child of, of God who brings a sense of hope, purpose, dignity into the lives of others. This is Paul talking here, right? This is the great apostle, the great evangelist, the guy with the three missionary journeys, the guy who was shipwrecked, the guy who was beaten with rods, the guy who was in prison, the guy who was in prison with chains singing hymns of God before the earthquake came and shook the prison open, and then yet he remained 
This is the same Paul who baptized the jailer who ran into him and says, what must I do to be saved? Because you guys should have run and you didn't run. So, op so you must be obviously operating on some higher power. What gives? I want in. This is the same Paul. Yet this, yet this Paul, for all of his noble deeds as an apostle and as, and as a, an evangelist, still, as he's penning his thoughts as a mature theologian and evangelist, he is saying, I still struggle. I still will things that I can't realize. I still make mistakes. I still sin. I am still broken. Now, to hear this, that's for us to be encouraged. Because we have nothing like Paul's comparison. We are not, even me. <laughs> even me, I'm supposed to be in the, the, the position of the, the consummate eternal evangelists. And I'm like, eh, you know, I don't feel like it today. <laughs> right? Because you have moments. You have moments where you're like, okay, I'm going I'm to do it, man. I'm going to make Christ known. And you're like, ah, then we'll go take a walk. <laughs> I'm going to take a walk and put my feet up. A dog needs another walk. Goats need walks, right? You can find, Sherry understands this. <laughs> so you have, you have this sense in which you can, you can talk yourself and rationalize yourself out of being that servant of God for that given moment. And Paul understands this. Because Paul knows that as a person who is trying to establish churches, work with inter-church conflict, work with personality types, there's lots of times when he wants to throw his arms up and say, ah, rubbish, I don't want to deal with these people. Obviously, they're, they're too thick to understand. And frankly, I'm, I'm just tired. I don't, I don't feel like I want to bring the word of God today. I don't feel like I can bring it effectively. I don't feel like I can do it justice today. And even if I did have the will to want to try to be compassionate, I'm probably going to end up giving somebody a smack, right? You know, I, I want a will to do the good, but I cannot bring myself to do the good wretched man that I am. So Paul talks about this internal struggle because he wants us to understand not only the people that he's writing to, but those who will, who will read this. He didn't know how long these letters were going to last, right? He'd probably be surprised. He's like, you still reading that stuff? Woohoo! I needed an editor. But anyway, so the, the fact of the matter is, is that we are still reading. We are still meditating on these things. And Paul is trying to say, first of all, let's just, let's just be on the same page. We all have brokenness. Now, I grew up in a tradition. I grew up congregationalist. And what I know about at least the Congregationalists that I grew up, because there are very different strains, is that we didn't, we weren't a sin every Sunday, uh, altar call, you know, washed in the blood, reminded of one's brokenness type of fellowship. <laughs> we weren't. That's probably why I enjoyed it. Because you know, I don't, some people just like to go to church to feel miserable, but I wasn't one of those people. I'm still not one of those people. And hopefully, you aren't either, because this is not the sadomasochist church, okay? Where it's like, come, be reminded of how miserable you are. I will lash you, and then send you home and say, see you next week. Uh, <laughs> so I grew up in that tradition where I, I had heard about, I had heard about pastors and I had heard about churches that really reminded you of just how miserable you were. And I was like, really? That's a thing? You can do that? And so I didn't grow up with that sense of constantly being reminded of how broken, spiritually impoverished I was. And maybe that's good because there's enough trauma that religion can bring on people. The last thing you do is, is to be reminded continually how little you measure up. But I'm not naive either, right? 
I have studied theology, I have read the scriptures, I have been in conversations and Bible studies. So I understand that there is a falling short that we as human beings, I'm human! We are human, so we know we know of what Paul speaks of. We don't. No one's going to read this passage from Paul and go, hmm, I don't, I don't, it's not, "That's not been my experience." I don't know, Paul. I guess you must have just been having a series of bad days because my life doesn't look anything like that. No, we read Paul and we go, "Oh yes, brother, I'm right there with you." I too recognize and understand the good, but when I set out to do it, I get in the way, right? I mess it up. I, I say inappropriate things. I do inappropriate things. I take my turn. I cut in the line. I am insincere. I listen to other people, but I don't really hear them. I wait for my turn to talk. I belittle their circumstances and tell them it's not as bad as, as, as they think it is. I take every opportunity to make sure that I'm taken care of before the needs of anyone else are met. So we understand that what Paul is speaking about is that the ego and the identity gets into the way. So Paul says, who can save me from this condition? Who can save me from my human condition where as much as I can recognize good things, as much as I can recognize compassion, love, kindness, and affirmation, but, but it's, like, it's, like, it's like behind a glass partition. You can see it. You can't get to it because there's this partition here, and you can't make your way around the partition. So, so Paul is saying, Who can I call upon who has the great cosmic hammer that can break this glass in the event of an emergency? And he says, Praise be to Jesus. Praise be to Jesus who shows him the way out, not by virtue of doing it for him but setting forth the example by which if Paul and others can attach ourselves to that example, that's supposed to counteract and override this human impulse. Now, I want to share with you, and I'm going to, I'm going to sort of, I'm going to paraphrase this, but there was a mystic and preacher called Meister Eckhart, Middle Ages, when he lived. And he said something in one of his sermons that I, I didn't hear it personally because, you know, he was a little bit before my time, but I read it. <laughs> and one of the things that Meister Eckhart said, he says, the body, the body has all of its needs and resources met with great ease, right? There's food for the belly, there's drink, there's pleasure, there's, there's distraction, there's entertainment. And because the body here resides on earth where all of these things are at easy access, Right? There's nobody who goes around in the world and if you're hungry and you're along the way and you've got some coins in your pocket, you can stop and get something to eat. He says, but it is not so with the spirit because the spirit's resources are in heaven. There's a greater distance there and it requires a greater presence of mind and effort to be able to access that spiritual nourishment, that spiritual food. So I think that Meister Eckhart, in a way, is dovetailing a little bit with, with Paul because Paul's talking about the reason why he can recognize the good but his inability to do it is because it's so easy to do bad. It is so easy to mess up. It's so easy to be abrasive and discourteous. It's so easy because we see so many examples played out. And we see so many examples played out by people of, of renown and, and people of, of lesser uh, renown that it's just easy to follow suit. 
We take on that herd mentality. We see everyone else being scabby and crabby and disrespectful when we go, well, I can play that. I can join that party. And then the next thing, we're trying to out one another in misery. But how many examples do we see consistently of genuinely authentic good behavior of a person who actually, instead of just blurting out their response, takes that contemplative silence Right? Something's been said in, in the public sphere. Something inappropriate, something insincere, something just rude. People say rude things all the time and do rude things all the time. And so quickly, we meet fire with fire. We fire off our own rudeness. Yeah, well, you didn't brush your teeth. You know, and your wife's jacked up and this and that. And, and, and you run over shoes, you know, and you live in a trailer. You know, at least I got me as a house, right? So this is sense in which immediately we want to recriminate and come after people because we feel like everything is stand your ground now. So there's, there's no room anymore for uh, authentic debate. It's like you have to, it's war of attrition and you've got to completely lay waste to the other side. Otherwise, you're less than human. Wretched people that we are. So we see all of these examples of rudeness because it's so prevalent and it's so easy to access that we almost are inclined to think, well, maybe this is the way we are supposed to be. Maybe this is the way that we are supposed to actually conduct ourselves. Maybe it is survival of the fittest. And if the fittest is the one with the quickest repartee, uh, the quickest tongue, the sharpest tongue, the greatest ire, the greatest snark, then they win. But then you come and you connect yourself with the gospel, the loving gospel. You hear the stories of Jesus. You hear the stories of the disciples. And you go, oh, what? Why do they allow themselves to be run over like that? Why do they allow the Pharisees to trash talk them over there in the corner? You see the Pharisees over there in the corner. You say, look at that Jesus over there eating with unclean hands. Hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Let's go throw some shade on him. Right? And they go over and they say, hey, Jesus. Why don't you come and join us, the cool click? Why are you hanging out with these ragtag nobodies? <laughs> Just like, first of all, you don't understand me. And you don't understand these people. And you don't understand the mission. So when we hear these stories and we, and we lay that alongside the example that we see that's, that's of great prevalence in the world, we start to realize that there's a discrepancy there. That the gospel is calling us to a more mindful conduct to recognize that there but for the grace of God go I, right? That there, really is, that there really is no invitation of perpetual brokenness if we don't want it. That there really is no score stored up conflict between us and our neighbor if we don't create it and establish it and maintain it. That there really is no difference between us and our neighbor unless we want to go and perceive it. Two weeks ago I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just greet our day Wake up, head out in the day, and not look for perceived differences. Not look for the things that divide us. I mean, wouldn't that be just, 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 just one day, just one day, to not have to go out there and look for something that is other and different and something that you can despise and something that you can disdain. If you could just actually just go through life and see individuals possibly similarly the way that, that, that Christ would see us the way Jesus would recognize us. Because Jesus didn't see individuals and say, well, this one's blind, and this one's a leper, and this one was caught in adultery, and that one's a Pharisee, and this one's a tax collector, and that one's a sin, and parcel everybody out, right, and put everyone in the categories as a reason to not have to deal with them. 
as a reason to not have to deal with them. But Jesus went and said, there is someone who can, who can benefit from the realm of God. There is somebody who can benefit from the realm of God. There is somebody else who can benefit from the realm of God. And I can bring that to them. So the only distinction that he made was, who needs those rays of hope in their life? And can he bring it? And he brought it. So if we made our day's agenda, bringing the rays of hope, not bringing the division, we could start to appreciate Paul's exit strategy from sin, from the sinful thinking, from the broken thinking. In the Greek, and I wish I had the word with you, but in the Greek, to sin means to miss the mark. They use it as sort of like, it was like an archery term. And if you missed the mark, there was sin because the thing that you were aiming towards, you did not hit. And it seems that somehow to say that when one sin is, or to turn in on oneself, to miss the mark, it almost seems like too, too lightweight for the way that churches and moralism has, has come to use sin. Right? Now, now we've, we've come to use sin as such a blanket term of anything that we find so reprehensible and so distasteful that, that uh, a sin could be uh, the, something as, as innocuous as... I'm trying to think of something that's innocuous. <laughs> All right, it's, 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 getting, it's getting more and more difficult to find innocuous things. But the sin could be something so as innocuous as to... Oh, I don't know. Hit me up. This is a congregational share. What's something that's innocuous that we would consider sinful? Right? See? It gets, see how hard it is? Because we think of sin as like taking a life, um, you know, any one of the major crimes. Uh, but it's interesting. We think of violent crime as innocuous, but not that white collar stuff. Right? Because <laughs> you can buy your way out of that. So this is, this is what I'm saying. This is exactly what I'm talking about when Paul is saying, what is sin? Sin is to miss the mark where it, it, it's, it's, it's to cut a corner. It's to cheat. It's to find a loophole. And when that happens, not only is the individual damaged, but the community in which that individual lives is damaged. When I cheat and when I take a, cut a corner, it hurts all of you. You may not even know about it, but it hurts you because what it does is it creates for me a lower standard of a quality of life. So you imagine everyone, you know, you, you get that, uh, that, that candy dish sometimes that they put at offices. They've stopped doing that because people started breaking the rules. They, they didn't want to take one mint anymore. They, you know, do one of these numbers and then put it in their handbag, right? Like pockets bulging. It's like one mint per customer. Come on, seriously. Right? I mean, it's like we're, we're not feeding the entire Little League team. But it's, it's that understanding that sin is, is, taking, is taking the treasure, taking more than you need, right? So no one else can get any sweetness. No one else can have any fun. No one else can have any opportunity. So if each and every person is continuing to think only of themselves, what kind of community and what kind of society are you going to get as a result when everyone has taken all the mints? And the basket, and then they take the basket too, right? And then, if, and then if somebody tries to calm on them, they give them a smack and say, no, I'm taking this basket. <laughs> then you've got a community where everyone literally is all cut and thrust, and there's no quality of life. 
So Paul says it has to start with that self-conditioning. It has to start with the mindfulness for us to realize that there's always a temptation to, to take more than is one's due. There's always a temptation to cut the corner. There's always a temptation to say, well, no one's watching. Nobody's here right now. No one's going to know. And that's how it starts. It's the little tiny path, little trickle, that once it starts to gain enough stream downhill, then it becomes a deluge. Then you can't stop it. And when you get a deluge of bad behavior that swells, then it becomes a movement. And when you have a movement that is a corrosive, insincere, inhospitable movement, then you have destruction. And so Paul is basically telling individuals at this church, in this church community, he's like, yes, it begins with the individual. It starts as a trickle. It starts with, the, with this desire to want to will good, but then to do evil. And then pretty soon to no longer resist the evil that we do. And then we just sort of give into it, right? We, give, we become comfortable with it. It becomes like a garment that's broken in, right? You know, the jeans with the rounded knees and the tatters, because they're so comfortable they can like walk on their own, <laughs> right? Everyone's got a pair of them jeans. Where it's like, when's the last time? Did you clean these things? Like, no, no, they're comfortable. Don't, don't mess with it. Just leave them. And that's how sin gets to us because it's the garment that if we allow ourselves, we wear too frequently. We wear it too often. And we actually think we look good in it. Meanwhile, everyone else is like, you could use a wash, <laughs> right? Right? Like your conduct, your character could use a wash because you're stinking, right? Your behavior is stinky. It's not looking good. It's not advantageous to the rest of us. It's pulling you down and it's pushing everyone else away. But meanwhile, we think we look good in our stink. We think we look good in our sin because nobody's going to really know anyway. Haters. <laughs> that's, that's a term we throw out for anyone who wants to try to correct us and hold us accountable. We get haters. In Jesus' day, they called them naysayers. Now they're just called haters. And we unfriend them. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the mentality that we are working out. But Paul is serious. Paul is absolutely serious. And I think one thing that maybe Christendom has not been very good about is encouraging the introspection. We're hive thinkers in the congregation. We look at what the congregation does. We look at how the congregation is arrayed. We look at the, the socioeconomics of our congregation. And then we fall in line and we follow suit. Every church does this. From the little storefront churches where they're praising and they're, you know, they got that one little out, out of key piano up front and they're just like magic and they're like singing and hopping to the huge, gracious, glorious cathedrals surrounded by ancient stained glass and a pipe organ that'll you know, rock this block. Every church takes on, every congregation takes on the flavor of the congregation. So if the congregation has little tiny peccadillos in there, little tiny sacred cows which, which, which borderline on idolatry, everyone just kind of falls in line. <laughs> but Paul says, we need to think and check ourselves. Because if each one of us is doing the personal work, if each one of us is actually working out the, the things that, that, that tempt us, the brokenness that tempts us, the brokenness that calls to us, the brokenness that tries to seduce us. And I know I'm using that language because that's what sin is like. Sin is like, yeah, come on in. It's good here. You're going to love it. Everything you ever want. Come on in. When Jesus was in the desert, he was tempted, right? He was tempted. Hey, turn this 
turn these stones into food, throw yourself off this, bow down and worship me and you can have all the kingdoms of the world. That's temptation. Right? You're like, really? I, I can just say the word and I can have it? And he says, yeah, say the word. And you're like, ooh, I want to say the word. And it's like watching those people who go crazy on prices, right? You know, they go, okay, spin that wheel. And they go, yeah! And they spin the wheel. You know, they get like $10. But they're freaking out because they think they're going to hit 1000 right? So that's what, that's what temptation does. It, it just, you just get a little closer to it. You get a little closer to it. You start to feel the warmth. And you're like, it's warm in here. It's nice. Paul says, be, be careful. Be careful, because it looks good, but it's sin that dwells in you. It's sin that wants you to say yes to that. This is probably the most you'll hear me talk about sin for the entire year, so listen up. Because <laughs> I'll go back to being a congregationalist later. But I'm trying to get my Baptist on. Uh, but there's a sense in which if we do the personal work, if each and every one of us is mindful of the things that call to us, the shortness of temper, the insincerity, uh, the false charm, whatever you consider is that personal thing that calls you not to be your best, that's calling you out, that, that actually makes you less than who you know you are. You gotta think about that. And you have to turn that stuff over to prayer because that's, for Paul's savings grace, it is the example and the model and the companionship of Jesus that saves him. He's like, I cannot do it on my own. If I could, I would have. And this is coming from a guy who was a great evangelist, a great church planter, and someone who knew and understood the law backwards and forwards. But he realized his own limitations. He realized his own frailty. He realized his own humanity. And he's, and he's, and he's, he's basically like, imagine Paul on his knees before you today and making an appeal and say, please be on guard. Know the warning signs. Know the warning signs of when you were getting sucked into some nonsense. Know the warning signs when somebody is trying to bait you with something that is less than your worth. Know the warning signs so you can ward it off and call on the power of Jesus. I know that sounds really Pentecostal, but I, I, I'm, I'm feeling that because, I, I, because what I'm seeing right now, and this is going to be my last point, and it's probably going to be, I'm going to say it, fine. I've been watching the Supreme Court stuff that's been going on. And this thing about the, uh, the website, the thing about the website, I am not going to make websites for gay people because it's against my religion. My little ears, my little preacher's ears went up. I said, oh, so, so religion now is the, uh, is the final arbiter as to who's in and who's out. Religion is now the final arbiter as to who's worthy to be served. And religion my friends, because we all practice it, can be a very slippery slope. Are we going to use our religion? To be, what, if, what if you decided to say, you know what, my religion doesn't allow me to have a black minister. Well, that's it for me. Goodbye. It was nice knowing you. Now, we laugh. We laugh, and I want you to laugh. But how far are we going to take this? My religion allows me not to serve people with uh, green dyed hair or wear eyeglasses or have a cast on or be a woman. We are the keepers of a great faith. But that faith is not without its problems and that faith is not in a position where it cannot be abused. If you haven't gathered, I'm very disappointed with the ruling. Because there's going to be people who are going to take that 
and run the distance with it. And we're going to be right back to the old lunch counter days, <laughs> right? Where all of a sudden now, um, my religion says X, Y, and Z, out. And we might think it's ridiculous. We might say, oh, it'll, they'll never do that. They'll never go back to those days where it's like, you know, using religion as a, as a cudgel to discriminate against this or that people. I'm like, the ball is already rolling. Sin. We can see the good. But when we act, we will what is wrong. And it is only the saving power of Jesus that can save us from our own foolishness. So I preach to you from the standpoint of realize, know yourself. The great Socratean theorem, know thyself. Know where you want to be as a child of God. Know where you want to be. Know, know what kind of world you want to live in. Know what kind of world you want to contribute to. Understand your weaknesses. Understand your temptations. Understand the things that, that pull towards you and you pray like you've never prayed before for strength to resist these things. Because the forces are great and they're out there and they're working and the wheels are turning right now and you haven't seen craziness yet. It will get crazier. I don't want us to get caught up in it. I want us to be able to say, you know what? This is exactly why pastor's been telling us to ground ourselves in prayer. Because he told us that the days would get crazy. He told us there would be people out there advocating all sorts of wild, outlandish things which don't reflect the gospel that I have come to know and love. He told us to be on guard. Because pretty soon things that were important and to, that mattered to us are now being taken away. Keep your eyes open. Keep your hearts open. Do not play these silly, foolish games that only for a moment look good for headlines and talking points. Ground yourself in a faith that is authentic and sincere and has a place for everyone. Because if your faith doesn't have a place for anyone, then I'm not the pastor for you. Honestly, I'm not the pastor for you if your faith doesn't have a place for everyone. Because my faith holds far and wide sway for everyone. And anyone who tries to tell me that my Jesus has limits on who is worthy to be loved, well, we're going to have an issue on that. Be some, we'll have some words on that one. Because as far as I'm concerned, that is sinful talk. And that's where I'm going to leave this. Amen.